0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're all in fellowship, ready to focus on the word, making sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 and let all the stragglers straggle in. So, see, I can only say that about good friends, you know. I, just, I won't embarrass somebody unless they're a good friend. All right, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be here tonight to be able to fellowship and to visit and to see some old friends. And Father, it's good to be able to be refreshed by a study of your word, to understand that it's your word that has addressed all the issues in life and there's nothing that comes up on our horizon today that is untouched upon by your word, that since you are the creator of all things, you have uh, something to say about everything to give us a framework of thought for every issue in life. Above all, Father, we thank you for our salvation, that because Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for every sin, in history, all that is left is for us to accept that free gift and to trust in Him alone for our salvation. Now, as we study Your Word tonight, guide and direct our thinking. Help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of announcements. The number today is 157, right? It had not changed in the last five minutes? It was 122 on Sunday morning. It's 157 tonight. That's registrations for the pastor's conference. So things are progressing. We have just under 3 weeks to go. Who knows, we may break 200. Where will we stack them? That's the question. So you can be in prayer for that. Everything's pretty much going according to according to plan there. Now, some of you may be aware of this, others of you may not be aware of this, but this last Friday, a new film opened at the local cinema. The title of the film is Amazing Grace, and it is the story of William Wilberforce, who lived in England in the late, uh, late 18th century and into the 19th century. And he, although not single-handedly, but he was responsible for the passage of the Uh, anti-slave trade bill that ended the slave trade in the British Empire and also the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And so this film has come out, and there's a number of things that have been out, uh, published by various various Christian sources promoting this and how great it is. And, of course, February was Black History Month, so there's often a connection made there. Uh, Because of that, everybody in America, and everybody here, I think, is an American. I don't know anybody here who's not an American. But most of you are native-born Americans, and so you have a tendency. When you hear the word slavery, you hear it with American ears. And you hear it with American ears that have been brainwashed by Yankee propaganda, by... Yankee, heretical, Christian propaganda. I want to make three statements. Too bad we don't have one of those game shows where you have a little meter there where you have your hand on a, on, a, on a thing on your arm and to, so I can see the vibration effect. Three statements. First of all, slavery is not immoral, sinful, or wrong. Second statement, slavery in some cases, is a very good thing. Third, the Bible does not condemn slavery. Now, have I got your attention this, this evening? See, the average tw- late 20th century, early 21st century American thinks that all three of those statements are false because there is a presupposition In American thought today, that slavery, by definition, is evil and inherently wrong. And what I'm going to show you tonight is it's not. See, I got started this morning. I woke up and I said, okay, we're going to be studying Genesis tonight. We're in Genesis chapter 47, which is a great chapter, a fascinating chapter, and leaves me with probably as many questions about some things as it's going to leave you. It's the story of what happens as... Joseph has brought the family to Egypt and he settles them in the land of Goshen. I'm just giving you the quick bird's eye view tonight because that's the last you're going to hear of Genesis 47 tonight. You get the quick bird's eye view of this and and so what what he does is he, he gets the family moved up to Goshen which is where they will settle, where the nation Israel will be protected and where they will grow and where they will actually acquire land according to Genesis 47. In contrast to the blessing of God upon uh, Jacob and his family and their acquisition of the land during this uh, worldwide depression and famine at that particular time, we see the Egyptian citizens coming towards the end of this seven-year famine cycle, where there the seven bad years, and as the last couple of years approach, they're running out of money to buy grain and to buy food that, that, of course, was wisely stored up by Joseph and Joseph is a picture of wisdom uh, throughout this section. So we have to keep that as a backdrop because when we look at Genesis 47 through the eyes of a lot of contemporary developments, we can come to wrong conclusions because it doesn't look good to us from our 20th century vantage point. Yet the writer of Genesis is Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is presenting a series of vignettes here in the life of Joseph to show how wise his leadership is as the savior of both the Egyptian people and the Jewish people, as they deliverer those descendants of Jacob that have come with him from the land. Because remember, we have to interpret what we're seeing here in the latter parts of Genesis. In fact, all the rest of the Bible has to be interpreted through the lens of that threefold promise of God in the Abrahamic covenant which had three elements in their land, seed, and what's that third one? blessing. That's right. Blessing. Joseph is pictured here as being a blessing not only to his family and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also he is a blessing to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, but at the end of the chapter in order for them to survive and not just to, he doesn't give them handouts. Well, that's the interesting thing here. He doesn't put them on welfare; they get to they get to buy food to survive, but they do it with their own land and with their own property and with whatever's left of their own cattle and their own their own livestock. And it, it ends up meaning that Pharaoh, who is the son of God and government in Egyptian viewpoint, ends up owning everything. And so, what happens at the end of the chapter is. The Jews have acquired land; they have autonomy, but the Egyptian citizens have become what we would call debt or indentured servants to the government, who imposes under under Joseph's wise and it's very merciful because unlike other nations that would have made it much higher, the Egyptians have to they they can they become as it were. Um, uh, tenant farmers, and the land is owned by the government, and they get to work it and enjoy 80% of the produce. You're going to like this. Pay the other 20% property tax. Right? That's basically what it is. They have to pay 20% to the government in order to work the land and enjoy it, which is just a form of property tax. It's interesting that when God sets up the Mosaic law, there's no property tax because God's providing for a future for the generation so that they can acquire, uh, acquire wealth. And what you have is a uh, sort of a flat rate income tax of, of uh, three different tithes in the Mosaic Law. But that's getting off the subject. The foundation that I want to get to here is slavery. So as I was working through all of this this morning, you end up at the end of the chapter with slavery. And I had intended to say something this morning or this evening about Wilberforce. And slavery and the Bible. And so all of that sort of connected. And I thought, well, we better look at what the Bible says about slavery so that we have this broad category that we can then take with us when we when we look at Genesis chapter 47. Otherwise, we're going to perhaps jump to some uh, wrong conclusions. So what does the Bible say about slavery? And what is the role of Christianity? And what should a Christian think about slavery? Now, if you listen to the secular media today that has this knee-jerk reaction against uh, against Christianity and wants to blame Christianity for every ill that comes down the, the, the highway, uh, then you're going to see that Christians get blamed for slavery. And it's true that there have been certain groups of Christians, using the term in a very broad sense, that have uh, been involved in the justification of wrong forms of slavery immoral and evil forms of slavery but it's the, it's not Christ, christianity as christianity is taught that produced that that came from other systems in fact the only religious or philosophical system in the history of the world that that developed a uh, 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 system for abolishing slavery was Christianity. Abolitionism d- could not grow out of Islam. It could not come out of Buddhism. It did not come out of Hinduism it didn't come out of secular humanism, it didn't come out of any of the other X axis spasms that have dominated the 20th century and man, in man and all of his intellectual arrogance as he looks down his nose at, at Christianity. It's only biblical Christianity. Now, there were fits and starts and problems in this issue and that issue all along the way, and it was inconsistently applied at times, and we recognize that that happens because Christians are sinners, which the non-Christian world doesn't quite understand, and we're flawed and we failed and we imperfectly apply things. So uh, that's a problem, but we get accused of things. William MacDonald in the New York Times wrote, how an institution that spread a message of love, that is Christianity, could also engage in brutality and persecution and turn a blind eye to slavery. In other words, see, it's all you Christians' fault. On the other hand, on a website for the Council for Secular Humanism, we find the following quote, that slavery was a close companion of Christianity. See, you're damned by association here. Uh, slavery was a close companion of Christianity and was not thought to conflict with religious doctrines. Now, you see, there, this, is, this is a problem we run into. So we have to develop some biblical categories. We have to recognize, first of all, that slavery wasn't invented by Christianity. Slavery goes back into the deep, dark recesses of the post-Noahic Flood era. We have no indication of it before the Flood, but it very well may have been practiced before the Flood. But slavery in one form or another was practiced by the Sumerians, by the early Babylonians, by the Hittites, by the Canaanites, by the Egyptians. It's been practiced by the Greeks and by the Romans, by uh, the inhabitants of North America known as the American Indians. All of these different groups practiced slavery. It happened in Africa, black-on-black slavery for hundreds of years, for thousands of years before Christianity came along. Aristotle uh, considered that some men were born in such a way that that they naturally ought to be uh, slaves. So there's been a justification from human viewpoint throughout the centuries that some men are naturally born to be slaves and others are different. It was only under the influence of Christianity. Even in some of the early years of the church, there were writers such as Justin Martyr and others who wrote against uh, slavery, that this was not consistent with uh, what the Bible taught about (coughs) that men should love their brothers as themselves. By the 19th century, the British Empire... uh, late late, late 18th century, the British Empire was deeply involved with uh, the slave trade. Starting in the 1600s, they had started uh, transporting African slaves from Africa to the West Indies. And this went on and increased uh, dramatically uh, through the... Uh, 1700, so that by approximately the time of the American War for Independence, you had about 100,000 African slaves a year were being transported from the heart of Africa to the Western Hemisphere as slaves. And so this was a major economic enterprise uh, in the British Empire. But it was at that time that there were some key evangelical, and I use that in a correct way, not like the news media today uses it, but in a correct way. Men who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, men who believed in the infallibility of the Word of God, men who believed that the only way to have eternal life was to put your faith alone in Christ alone, men who were uh, committed to the basic doctrinal, uh, historical doctrinal, orthodox views of the church. This is before you have the influence of uh, Protestant Christian liberalism. It's, It's peaking its ugly head over the horizon at this time in history, but it's only there in the uh, (coughs) recessed corners of certain uh, ivory tower schools of academia. It's not really out there uh, for public consumption yet. So we have the rise of men like William Wilberforce, and that's the hero in this particular movie because he was the Prime mover and shaker in this movement, but it did not begin with him. There was another man who was an even stronger influence in the movement, although he wasn't a member of parliament at the time, but he was very influential. And he, his name was Granville Sharp. Some of you have been around here a while and have heard his name mentioned in relation to Greek. Anybody who studies first year Greek learns a grammar rule called the Granville Sharp rule. Because this is a period in human history when men uh, didn 't waste their time watching television or going to movies or or uh, going to spending all their time playing sports, but it was the their their thrust in their culture to develop the mind to develop the thinking, and so men would have a vocation their calling, but they would also have avocations, and they were uh, often involved in a natural science and they were involved in, in geography and they were involved in all the beginnings of all these other sciences and they did this in their spare time. And one of the things that Granville Sharp did in his spare time was he became a master scholar in Greek. And but one of the things that he was deeply concerned about, because he was a Christian and on the basis of what the scriptures taught was that slavery In the form of chattel slavery, was inherently wrong, and we need to make a distinction between uh, chattel slavery and what we'd call uh, debt slavery, or what you might call an indentured servitude. We have to make that distinction because that's what, when we come to the scriptures, we'll see that there is a uh, distinction between between those two positions. As I pointed out. Earlier, there were several early movements among Christians to, attempt, to try to abolish slavery. You had Justin Martyr, also uh, Patrick of Ireland, uh, abolished all forms of slavery in Ireland. Uh, Augustine, who died in 430, attempted to end all slavery, thinking it was an inconceivable horror. But by the time of the end of the 18th century, you had a group of people develop Called and, and called the Clapham Sect that spells C L A P H A M. Clapham Sect. They met in a small village of Clapham just outside of London, and they really weren't a sect in the sense, the pejorative sense of a cult or something like that. They were just a close fellowship of evangelical Christians, most of whom were very powerful and very wealthy English. Lords and gentlemen. And they met together for the purpose of mutual encouragement because it was a time in England. Remember, this is roughly the same time as the American War for Independence. It's a time in England where England recognized they were in a period of moral and spiritual decline. And these men recognized that God had placed them in a unique position because of their wealth, because of their influence, because of their political power to have a positive impact on the nation. It's very important to understand how they did that what their motivation was and what their theological framework was because we will see some differences between what happened in England and what happens in the United States. And theology is at the very core. If you've heard me for very long, you know that I believe that theology drives every issue in life. There is no issue in life that isn't ultimately driven by a theological perspective. And if you start off with bad theology at the get-go, you're going to end up with Wrong application, and it will bring with it uh, consequent problems. Well, William Wilberforce was a native of Kingston-upon-Hull, where he was born in 1759. He was raised by some evangelical relatives of his parents, but he did not become a believer until about 1784, when he was about 25 years of age. He was educated at St. John's College in Cambridge. And in 1780, when he was 21 years of age, he became a member of parliament. He was a representative in the House of Commons for Hull. Later, he was a representative for Yorkshire. And at that time, he became an intimate friend of William Pitt. And William Pitt is the one who labeled him with the title, The Nightingale of the House of Commons because he had the ability to sway people with his tremendous oratory. And so he was very involved in politics from the time he was 21 on, and in representing his constituency. In 1784 and five, he was traveling on the continent, he was reading a New Testament, And he was also uh, reading material written by a tract written by a Philip Doddridge. And while he was reading that, he recognized that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for his sins and he trusted Christ as his Savior. And unlike many Christians, he recognized that that meant that he had to overhaul all of his thinking from the ground up in terms of what the Bible says. And he didn't say, okay, I just want to do enough to be saved. He recognized that that God had saved him for a purpose and placed him where he was in society and in politics for a purpose. And I didn't get there easily. He really initially wanted to go in the ministry. But there was a pastor who was involved to some degree, knew many of the people involved in this Clapham group, who became his mentor. And this pastor told him that that he didn't need to go into pastorate. He needed to recognize that God had placed him as a representative in the House of Commons for a purpose, and that he needed to serve the Lord there as a member of parliament, that God had specific purposes for him. And this young pastor has a well-known name of John Newton. John Newton was a former slave ship uh, captain and slave trader. And he trusted Christ as his Savior, and he... Left the slave trade and became a pastor, and eventually he wrote a hymn that is sung now and then by people called "Amazing Grace," and that's why this film has the title "Amazing Grace" is they're all connected. And Newton was a uh, mentor for Wilberforce throughout the rest of uh, Newton's life. He was somewhat older uh, than uh, Wilberforce by this particular by this particular time. So Wilberforce kept his position in Parliament and he became involved with these other uh, believers who were involved uh, behind the scenes to influence uh, the government and to influence legislation. This was the beginning of what snowballed into what I think is the golden era of uh, evangelical Christianity during the Victorian era. It was the decisions that were made by these men in a lot of different ways that set the foundation for the rise and development of missions and the world missionary movement that came out uh, of England in the 19th century had a tremendous uh, impact because of a lot of things that they did. For example, in 1787 they established the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. In 1799, they established the Church Missionary Society. In, seven, in 1804, they established the British and Foreign Bible Society. In 1796, they established the Society for Bettering the Condition of the Poor. They also established the Society for the Reformation of Prison. Not this group officially, but men within this group would be involved in this. They were involved in the uh, founding the Society for the Pro- Propagation of of the knowledge of the gospel among the Jews, men from this group, and Wilberforce was involved in that. He was very much a pro-Zionist, believing that the Jews should have had a right to their own homeland, and very much against those who were anti-Semitic. He also founded the Society for the Promotion of Manners, because it was had come to a point by the end of the 18th century in uh, in England where... Uh, People just didn't know what good manners were anymore. And so they did a lot of of things that were good. And sometimes we might say, well, that's just a bunch of do-good stuff. No, it's not. They did this because they understood what provided stability in a nation. And that stability could only come from the eternal principles of God's Word. And they were simply applying these. Some of these men were official members of government. Others weren't. But they were extremely influential. And as I said, their, their impact extended in England down through the 19th century and into the early part of the of the 20th century. Now, what I pointed out earlier was that the thing that distinguished these men on the other side of the pond, as they say, from American abolitionists was their theology. It's very important to understand their theology. So it's, I've always found it helpful ever since... I had a couple of classes in seminary and church history, and we would always break things down according to the categories of theology. So whenever you're evaluating somebody, just start off, what's their view of the Bible? What's their view of man? Or what's their view of God? Then what's their view of man? What's their view of salvation? What's their view of the church? What's their view of the future? Just ask those questions, and that helps you uh, expose their theology. Well, in terms of bibliology, which is important because that tells us what our ultimate authority is, in terms of bibliology, they believed that the Word of God was inerrant and infallible in modern terms. They believed it was inspired by God, breathed out by God, and thus infallible. And because they believed that the Bible was inerrant, that what the Scriptures taught was absolutely true. And thus when the Scriptures taught as in Acts 17.26 that God made all nations of one blood meant that all human beings were equally descended of Noah and of Adam. And thus every single human being whether they were from the heart of the dark continent or whether they were Asian or European wherever they were from they were equally in the image of God. And therefore no one was... Uh, inherently any, any better or any worse. They believed uh, Genesis 1.26 was absolutely true, that every, every person was in the image of God. In theology proper, they were, of course, Trinitarians, but they w- believed that God governed and superintended uh, human history. They had a sound view of God as the creator, and consequently, man as the creature. That leads us to anthropology, that is the biblical view of man. They believed that all human beings were created in the image of God and thus equal. And they believed that all human beings were descended from fallen Adam and were equally fallen. So that every human being was totally depraved. And that because he was born a sinner, he would die a sinner and he could not be perfected. He was constitutionally fallen. And therefore man was able to grow and mature as a believer, but he was not perfectible. Very important to understand that. The implication of that is that if man is not perfectible, society is not perfectible. And if society is not perfectible, then that means that part of the role of government, of human government, is to suppress evil and criminality. When it comes to salvation, they believed that because man was a sinner, there had to be a spiritual substitute for him on the cross. They believed in an atonement that was a substitutionary atonement, that Christ died in the place of us. Now, you have to remember, bring up a little church history here, that in the history of Christianity, there are several different views of the atonement that have been set forth. One was set forth in the early part of the church, and it was reached its greatest expression in the early church, and a... Uh, a, a work done by Anselm that the, had the Latin title of Cur Deus Homo, or Why the God Man. Then, a little later, you had another man whose name started with A, who came along and he had a, a different view, and his name was Abelard. And Abelard's view was that, that Jesus' death on the cross was simply an example of how somebody ought to live and die for what they believe in. And if we were commit to God as Jesus committed to God and follow his example, uh, even to the point of death, then you could have salvation. And then in the early 17th century, a Dutch lawyer, who incidentally was also the founder of international sea law by the name of Hugo Grotius, Came along with a view called the governmental view that the cross was just to exemplify the moral government of God over, over man. And if you uh, recognized that morality, the moral government of God and became moral and, and became uh, internally converted to a moral life, which you did yourself, then you could follow Christ. And that was the view that was adopted by a man named Charles Grandison Finney who we'll study, uh, In a little bit in America, because he's the part of the theological foundation of American of of American uh, abolitionism. So in England, they didn't believe in a moral view of the uh, or governmental view of the atonement. They didn't believe in a uh, an an exemplar or exemplar view of the atonement. They believed in a substitutionary view of the atonement that that Christ died for us. That the atonement was both penal and substitutionary. Then we look at their eschatology, their view of the future, and their eschatology grew out of their uh, views on man's condition, on anthropology and salvation, and they were kind of a mixed bag. Some were omil, but most were premillennial in their views. That's why they had positive views towards Israel and were involved in, in um, uh, getting established the... Uh, missions to Jews in England taking the knowledge of the gospel uh, to the Jews well this is their motivation their motivation grew out of grace orientation and humility they weren't trying to perfect society they didn't believe it was the government's job to, to bring about a perfect utopic society but it was the role of the government to suppress evil and criminality and the Bible is the ultimate source for defining what evil and criminality is not not man. In 1788, just to give you a little bit of a timeline, in 1788, a hundred petitions were signed uh, attacking the slave trade and this went before the House of Commons. The next year, in 1789, Wilberforce gave his first speech in the House of Commons, but he knew he didn't have enough information. He hadn't done enough homework yet to build his case. In 1792, the House of Commons voted in favor of the principle of abolition of the slave trade. But the next year you had a little episode across uh, the ch- channel called the French Revolution. And that just upset everybody in England, thought we were headed for anarchy, and so they reversed themselves in 17, uh, 1793 because they were afraid that uh, something like the anarchy of the French Revolution would take place in England. 1791, just to back up a little bit, uh, Wilberforce had again... Uh, addressed the House of Commons on the issue, and he was beginning to gain more and more support. And it was uh, finally some 15 or 16 years later, on the 23rd of February in 1807, that the House of Commons uh, voted. And at that time, the opposition to uh, the principle of abolition uh, had their back broken And they had to, they voted, and they voted in favor of the abolition of the slave trade in the British, uh, and slavery in the British Empire. Uh, But that did not end it. There was another 20 years of battle, and finally the Emancipation Act was passed on the 25th of July, 1833, just four days before William Wilberforce was to die. Professor G.M. Trevelyan, in his work, The British History in the Nineteenth Century, says, On the last night of slavery in the British Empire, the Negroes in our West Indian Islands went up on the hilltops to watch the sunrise, bringing them freedom as its first rays struck the waters. But far away in the forests of Central Africa, in the heart of darkness yet unexplored, none understood or regarded the day. Yet it was the dark continent which was most deeply affected of all. Before its exploitation by Europe had well begun, the most powerful of the nations that were to control its destiny had decided that slavery should not be the relation of the black man to the white. Now what's interesting is that's 1833. But that doesn't actually end the slave trade in Africa. You have Arabs still carrying on their historic slave trade, capturing uh, black Africans and selling them into slavery. This reached another peak in the 1870s, and it was necessary for England to loan one of its uh, more brilliant military men and more eccentric Christians, a man by the name of Charles Gordon. Now, Charles Gordon had uh, gotten a lot of fame because he had been uh, used earlier in China, put in charge of a Chinese army to put down one of the longest uh, rebellions that had ever uh, taken place in the history of mankind. And he received the title Chinese Gordon as a result of that. He's also known the history of Christianity because he had a tendency to go to all the great historical sites in the Middle East and he would reject the traditional sites of Calvary and the tomb and the and, uh, Ararat and many other places. And he had his own view. And he got his own view because he was rather mystical and so he would, he would go out and he would have these rather mystical insights and so he would draw a picture of the body of Christ on a map of Jerusalem and so then he would decide where the cross was and where the tomb was and all this other stuff. So he was, he was a bit of an eccentric but he was a, he was a tremendous military leader. So he was sent, he was put on loan to the Egyptian government And he was sent down to the Sudan in order to stamp out the slave trade in the heart of Africa, which he did, and he gained great fame for that. So in the that was in the 1870s. So some 10 years later, in the middle of the 1880s, once again, notice it's another evangelical believer. Well, a little eccentric, but he's another evangelical believer. Of course, he had to be played by Charlton Heston if you saw the movie Cartoon. And if you haven't, you ought to see it. Uh, Gordon was sent down because of his background in the Sudan when uh, the radical Islamofascist uh, claimed that the 11th Mahdi had arisen. See, that's what Dajab is talking about today, is the rise of the 11th Mahdi is going to lead them into the great uh, promised land of, of Muslim eschatology. Anyway, that happened. See how history just sort of cycles itself and recycles itself. So they, that uh, Gordon went down there, and he, of course, was martyred, but he delayed the Mahdi long enough for the British to get an army together and finally go down and to defeat uh, the Muslims, so we continue to have that problem. Anyway, the 19th century was the outworking. All of this happened as a result of the abolition of the slave trade. The abolition of the slave trade by, engineered by Wilberforce, had all these ramifications throughout history. Muslims have been angry about Khartoum and what the British did in the 1880s, and that's all part of this, what fuels a lot of the stuff that's going on today. So all these things intertwine. If you hadn't had a Wilberforce, you wouldn't have had a a Khartoum. You wouldn't have had a Charles Gordon. All these things uh, are interesting They interconnect. Okay, well, that was what happened in England. And I want you to notice something that when they abolished the slave trade in England and when they abolished slavery in England, did they have a civil war? No. They had no civil war. Did they have any civil unrest? No, they had no civil unrest. Did did they uh do they continue to have racial problems uh generated by that in English uh in English society today? No, they don't. They have racial problems like everybody has it for other reasons, but not out of of the slavery situation. It's not there. Why? I would argue that the reason they don't have it there is purely theological. The movement to reform society was generated by men of humility, men who understood man as he was as a totally depraved sinner. Thus, they weren't trying to perfect society they weren't trying to bring in the millennium. They weren't trying to impose anything on anybody. They were simply trying to end an evil. But you jump across the pond, what was going on in America in the 19th century. Now, this is where the fact that most of you never studied any church history hurts you. Because what you had in the, 19th, in, the, in the 18th century, rather, was you had the first great awakening that occurred in the 1740s. And this happened in America. Now, what you have to understand is that some of us kind of think that when you hear the word Calvinism, you start vibrating and think that all Calvinism is bad. Well, in this historical setting, Calvinism is good. Okay? Now, you may not just take my word for it. Calvinism is good because nearly everybody who came to America in the 1600s and 1700s, was Calvinistic in their theology to one degree or another. Uh, I I listened to some lectures recently given by a five-point Calvinist who has his Ph.D. in the history of Calvinism from uh, Cambridge, I believe, and he's a strong five-point hyper-Calvinist, and even he says that Henry Thiessen was a moderate Calvinist. (laughs) So... Uh, a lot of people say, well, if you believe in eternal security, you're a, you're a moderate Calvinist. So it all depends on how you're defining this, and I don't want to get distracted that way. But remember, the Scots-Irish were Presbyterians. They peopled the South and the, the mid-Atlantic colonies. You had the Puritans and the Pilgrims, all had a... Had a Calvinistic theology, a very high view of God and a very low view of man because they understood man to be a sinner. They were trying to work out all of these these implications. But sometime after the second great, I mean the first Great Awakening, towards the end of the seventeen hundreds, there was a controversy that came up within Calvinism called um, New Light Old Light Calvinism, and the New Lights were what we would call the liberals. You know, this was really the beginning of liberalism. It was eventually the New Light Calvinists went into Unitarianism. Okay? Now, one of the uh, shining stars in the galaxy of New Light Calvinists was a man, an evangelist, who came out of the Second Great Awakening, which began in the early 1800s, by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. And And there's a lot of people who think that Finney was just one of the great evangelist but Finney was I doubt that Finney was saved I don't think there was anything biblical about the man's theology he was born, and born in Warren Connecticut raised on a farm he, he entered into the legal profession and he claims to have a religious conversion in 1821 he entered into the St. Lawrence Presbytery in 1823 he was mentored by a pastor in the study of theology, which must not have taken very well, uh, and, and probably heavy on uh, New Light or New School uh, Calvinism. Now, what made it New School Calvinism? I well, remember I gave you those categories about the theology of the of the evangelicals in Britain. Well, let's compare that to, to, to Finney. Total. What, what do you think about man? Man was Adam sinned but it only affected Adam. Everybody else gets born just like Adam was originally created, pure as the driven snow. Everybody has pure free will just like Adam had pure free will. Everybody's born good and can theoretically make the right decisions and never sin and never fall. Man is basically good. See, Wilberforce and those guys all understood the man was basically bad. But Finney felt like everyone was basically... Basically, good, and so all people have people are by nature then improvable on their own. Society then will be perfectible. So, in New School Calvinism, people have the ability to repent and to give themselves new hearts. They basically save themselves by their own morality, and that fits with his view of salvation. He had held to a Grodian or governmental view of the atonement. That, that salvation is by morality. So people just have to be encouraged to want to be saved. So it, it boils down to emotion. Well, if I give my fire and brimstone message, and I want to make sure you're getting saved, then I want to have evidence of it. So I want you all to come forward. You want to make a decision for eternity, then you just walk the aisle. But i got to motivate you, so we're going to have some music and we're going to sing 27 verses of Just As I Am or something else, and we're just going to keep singing it until everybody's out of the pews and up front on the anxious bench. And then we're going to create... And all of this had its roots in Finney's theology, because man can save himself and make himself savable. So if man can save himself and make himself savable, and man is improvable, then society is improvable, and it's the goal of the Christian to improve society. Why? Because he's post-millennial. Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium, not at the beginning of the millennium. Now, he's not pre-mill, he's post-mill. That means the church has to bring it in. So the church has to morally improve society in order to bring in a utopia so that Jesus can come back. Well, we can't have a perfect America unless we solve our big social sins. And the first social sin was slavery, and the second social sin was alcohol, and the third social sin had to do with labor and uh, led to union rights. And the fourth social sin had to do with all the poor women who couldn't vote. And the fifth social sin had to do with child labor. Now, didn't I just describe American history, social history, and liberalism for the last 180 years? Just take them off one at a time. And that was their goal, was if we can just end all of these social sins, we'll have a utopic society and Jesus will come back. Of course, that's been made secular in the years since then, but that was his motivation. Well, if what's the underlying motivation if you think man can save himself? It's one of those A words, arrogance. And arrogance always polarizes people. And Charles Finney founded a, a little school up there near where Jim Myers, by the way, Jim's here tonight, up near where Jim Myers grew up, called Oberlin Semina- Seminary. And that's, incidentally, they had a music conservatory school, which is where Lucifer Chaffer uh, got his musical training. But Oberlin was the seedbed. It was the soil out of which fiery uh, anti-slavery abolitionism grew in American history. Right out of the Second Great Awakening, which wasn't an emphasis on the grace of God, but it had an emphasis for the most part, at least on the western side of the uh, Adirondacks, and Appalachians it had an emphasis on the morality of man and of course Ohio was in the west and so ab- uh, the abolitionist movement had its roots if, you, if if it was a man it was standing with uh, with one foot in each of two two movements one movement was this left what i'd call left wing the precursor to liberal evangelicalism that man is improvable, society is improvable, let's go change everything. And the, you know, you think politics makes strange bedfellows? I think we're going to see a Hillary and Obama coalition, but that's another story. Uh, Theology makes strange bedfellows. The abolitionist movement joined this pseudo-Christianity of Finney, with the transcendentalist of the of Emerson and Thoreau, and you, it produced these preachers that came out of Second Great Awakening, like uh, Lyman Beecher, who was Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother, and his father Henry Beecher. Maybe I got Henry and Lyman reversed, but it's you know that's where they come from, and so their whole movement is to improve and perfect society. So so they go way off the reservation in terms of their arrogance. Well, arrogance always polarizes. So the more the Yankee abolitionists went to their extreme, the southern hotheads went to the other extreme. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so what happened? You have an explosion here, but it goes. it's much more theological than that because, you see, as new light and new school Calvinism began to dominate the Calvinism in the north, There were some northerners like the whole Princeton faculty rejected it and stayed firm until 1927. But southern Presbyterians, southern Calvinists, rejected this proto-liberalism of the north because in their their proto-liberalism, it was leading them to a view of bigger and bigger government, that papa-federalism, needs to solve all the problems of society because that's how we're going to reform everything. And the South rejected big government as a solution to the problem because of their theology. Notice how everything is theologically driven. So in America, you have a theological shift away from biblical orthodoxy in the North that generates a self-improvement Movement in abolitionism that's generated by arrogance that produces an arrogant reaction on the other side. I'm not letting the South off and I'm not justifying the chattel slavery in the South. I'm just trying to get you to understand how this, how this was, had its, uh, roots in, uh, in, uh, biblical theology. Now, what does the Bible say about slavery? I made the point when we started off that I was going to cause y'all to vibrate a little bit and make some statements that that uh, slavery isn't inherently evil. Let me give you a principle. God doesn't regulate evil in the Bible. God condemns it. He says things like "Thou shalt not." He doesn't say, "Well, if you want to get involved in idolatry, let me regulate it. And let me show you the conditions when idolatry's okay and when it's not." You want to get involved in And sexual immorality, well, let me give you some parameters here. No, God either, if it's sin, God condemns it. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 21. This is part of the Mosaic Law. And let me remind you that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that the Mosaic Law was holy and righteous and just. That means that there's nothing in here That is wrong. So in Exodus chapter 21 we read, Laws concerning slaves. Verse 2 talks about an enslaved Jew, an enslaved Hebrew. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh he shall, what's it say, go out and pay nothing. See, it's not lifetime chattel slavery. It's what we would call debt slavery. We can read on. Look at some, uh, let me see here. I've got some other passages to look at. Uh, Verses, look down about verse, lost a page of notes. Look at verse 5. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free... Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. In other words, if, if there was a slave that was a lifetime slavery, it was because he entered into it of his own volition. He did it for his own financial well-being and the well-being of his family. He knew that he couldn't do it. And under Jewish system, a slave could rot, was treated with, with many of the same rights and privileges of a, of a free man because he was created in the image and likeness of God. Look down to verse 7. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In other words, a female slave is going to have certain protections. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself there, then he shall let her be redeemed. In other words, there's this buyout privilege for for every slave. Let's skip down to verse 20. If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. God's just legitimized that under certain conditions. Modern American thought is that, well, that's evil and wrong. You can't judge God... By, an, by a biblically external uh, criterion. All I'm saying is that when you look at the Mosaic Law and what it says about slavery, it's temporary. Every slave was set free after seven years on the, on the sabbatical year. Uh, if they wanted to stay slaves, they did it of their own volition, but it was designed to provide some economic security to somebody who got into too much debt. He could indenture himself... For a period of time it's not based on wasn't based on race it wasn't a necessary lifetime thing and in many situations they had they were treated uh, with certain privileges under the law just as if they were a free Jewish citizen. Now, in conclusion, so I was talking about Wilberforce tonight. Wilberforce is a great challenge for all of us because what these men in the Clapham group, emphasized was that God puts us in places of influence, and as believers we have a responsibility to be influential in terms of a biblical worldview. And it may take years to affect uh, many different kinds of changes, and we never know what impact our decision-making will have. In 1805, a couple of years before they did vote in the uh, abolition of the Slave Trade Act, Uh, Wilberforce was getting up there in years. He was older. He was uh, in his 50s, which was getting older in those days. But he had always been sickly. He was a very small man, a frail man. He had often uh, come close to death. And it was a time of, of of a moral crisis in England. Lord Melville was the admiral in charge of the British Navy. At the time, in 1805, Europe was at war. The European world was at war. The British were fighting uh, a combined enemy of the Spanish and French. It was at the time of Napoleon. And Napoleon was sending out a fleet to destroy the British Navy. But there was a problem with Lord Melville because many years before, he had been involved in a situation of financial mismanagement and financial wrongdoing. It had finally become exposed and caught up with him, and it was a national scandal. And the country was divided because here was this man who was the head of the Navy, and half the country was crying to impeach him, and the other half was saying, Let him stay. Sound familiar? On April the 8th, 1805, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and the final vote is due in the House of Commons. Pitt, William Pitt, the close friend of Wilberforce, was on the opposite side of the aisle from Wilberforce on this. Wilberforce stuck to his gun, stuck to his sense of integrity that the man, because he he had violated the law, had disqualified himself from serving in this high position. So Wilberforce took the, uh, took the podium and he swayed his audience. The vote was called for and the chamber was split. 216 votes in favor of, of, uh, re, of impeaching him and 216 votes in favor of keeping him. The Speaker the House of Commons was a man named Abbott. He turned pale because he knew that he had to cast the deciding vote. And he voted against Lord Melville. Now Melville, this is a crisis time in the military. You're replacing the highest man in the British Navy when you know you're about to be attacked by the enemy. Melville was replaced by a, an old Methodist believer by the name of Lord Barnum. He was an old sailor. He knew boats. See, Melville had never been served on a ship. He had never been out to sea. On the day that Barnum took power, they received word that the French and Spanish fleet had slipped out into the Atlantic. They knew that whoever controlled the Atlantic would control the world. So late one night, a dispatch came through informing them of their location. Barnum was an old man, so they decided to let him sleep. But when he got up the next morning, he just let him have it. He dictated orders to Admiral Nelson telling him exactly where to position his fleet and to position it in a double battle line. The location was Trafalgar. The battle took place on October 21, 1805. The French approached in a single battle line and they were cut down by this double battle line that hit them at right angles under the British and the French and Spanish fleet was... Decimated, 20 French and Spanish ships were destroyed or captured and not a single British vessel was lost. It was the arguably the most significant naval battle in the last 200 years because as a result of that, Britannia ruled the seas for the next 120, 130 years, the, the Navy of Britain. As a result of that, When some 30 years later, the slave trade was abolished because Wilberforce had the moral integrity to stand his ground on the moral issue, the British Empire had the military might in order to enforce the law and in order to enforce the abolition of the slave trade. So we never know what would have happened. Remember, Nelson won the battle, but he won it only because the strategy was given him by Lord Barnum. And Barnum was only able to position the fleet because Lord Melville, who didn't know the oceans and didn't know the ships, had been impeached and removed from office just the night before uh, they got word that they were going to be under attack. Some people feel that that was one speech that changed the world. You never know. What one decision, one stand you're going to make is going to impact, how it's going to impact the world, and how that one decision will reverberate down through history. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be reminded of this, the impact that your word has in the lives of people and as their lives impact uh, the world around them. Father, we pray that as we face the challenges that your word gives us, that we'll have the spiritual integrity to respond positively to those mandates and that we will take a firm stand for the truth, the righteousness, the virtues that are in your word. We pray that we would always remember that everything is of grace. It's not our job to impose the word on people. It's our job to be witnesses of the truth to a dying world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.